Welcome to episode number nine for Darkgate Horror Podcast. This is the first podcast in the director's series. M. Night Shyamalan is one of my favorite new directors, and although bold, he tends to have a very devoted following of fans, even for his not-as-good films, which I'll talk about in a bit. I'm going to give some biographical information and discuss the man behind the films, and then discuss the films in detail, including spoilers, of course, and my thoughts on each film. So let's get started. So who is M. Night Shyamalan? He was born Manaj Neliatu Shyamalan on August 6, 1970 in India, but he was raised in the upper-class suburban Penn Valley area of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the son of two doctors. His passion for filmmaking began when he was given a Super 8 camera at age 8, and even at that young age began to model his career on that of his idol, Steven Spielberg. In fact, he completed 45 homemade movies by age 17. Waldron and Episcopal Academies and NYU Tisch School of the Arts in 1992. His middle name, Knight, was made up during college. He married Bahavna Vaswani in 1993 and has two children. His parents, wife, and nine other family members are MDs and or PhDs. His favorite film of all time is Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather from 1972. And he has to say this on the topic of fear. When you say fear of the unknown, that is the definition of fear. Fear is the unknown. Fear is what you do not want to know, and it's genetically within us so that we feel safe. We feel scared of the woods because we're not familiar with it, and that keeps you safe. He has several common elements that he uses in his films. The first is that he frequently uses Philadelphia as the backdrop of his movies, as seen in the films Wide Awake, The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, Signs, The Village, and Lady in the Water. The second is that he has some sort of twist in the end or surprise any of his films, An exception is the lady in the water. He frequently uses shots of people's reflections in various objects. Many of his films involve two ordinary individuals with extraordinary abilities or events happening to them. One of the people either has connections to a child or is a child, and the one connected to the child is always having marital difficulties. He frequently uses fluttering curtains, such as when Bruce Willis discovers the victimized mother in Unbreakable, and in the last shot of signs. His films often use an event from the main character's past as a major connection to what is happening in the present. For example, Vincent Gray in Sixth Sense, the car crash in Unbreakable, and the death of his wife in Signs. He frequently makes cameo appearances in his films like Alfred Hitchcock, one of his favorite directors. He frequently uses water as a sign of death or weakness, such as the aliens in Signs and David Dunn in Unbreakable. They both have the same weakness. In The Sixth Sense, Malcolm Crowe's killer is hiding in the bathroom. In The Village, Fenton becomes too scared to continue on with Ivy when it's raining. Car crashes play pivotal roles in his films. Cole reveals his, his gift to his mother during a traffic jam in The Sixth Sense. David loses his football abilities in a car accident in Unbreakable. And Graham's wife dies in a bizarre car accident in Signs. Many of his films have an important scene, or scene set in a basement. The Sixth Sense, Malcolm is in the basement when discovering important plot information. In Unbreakable, David discovers his strength in a basement. In Signs, the family is in the basement when the aliens attack. And in The Village, they're in the cellar, or basement, when Ivy discovers that Lucius really does care for her. M. Night's films tend to be religiously themed. They're a lengthy, uncut, immovable shot of two people talking. Usually the two characters are standing a distance from the camera. He uses bright colors, especially red, to signify a clue or a crucial item in a movie. And finally, he always works with James Newton Howard for the musical score. So there's a little bit about the director. Now let's talk about the films. Back in 1992, he was the director, writer, and star actor of a film called Praying with Anger. It's a film about an Indian-American man's return to India. The film did not have a wide release and played only in festivals. In 1998, he was the writer and director of Wide Awake. 
In this film about growing up, Joshua Beale, played by Joseph Cross, is a young boy who goes on a search for God after his grandfather dies. This film also features Julia Stiles in one of her earliest roles. Although made in 1995, it was not released until 1998. Josh seeks the help of a friend, Dave, with a baseball-loving nun, played by Rosie O'Donnell, in the search for a supreme being. The movie ends with Josh realizing that he has been looking for has been there all along. The film was nominated for Best Family Feature Drama and Best Performance in a Feature Film, leading young actor at the 1999 Young Artist Awards. It is the only Shyamalan-directed film to date in which the director does not make a cameo appearance. Shyamalan is, has stated that he was disappointed with the movie because he feels that the viewer cannot connect with the characters. However, many consider it to be a perfect movie to show children who have questions about God and religion. In 1999, he, he wrote the screenplay for Stuart Little, and that was also the same year that Sixth Sense came out. He was the writer-director, and he had a cameo acting role in the film. Now, here's another 1999 film. It's interesting, in my last podcast, I discussed two other 1999 films, The Blair Witch Project and Sleepy Hollow. I guess it was a good year for horror. The next four films will be very familiar to many of you, so I'll not focus so much on the synopsis. In Sixth Sense, Dr. Malcolm Crowe, played by Bruce Willis, is a prominent child psychologist. In the opening scene, he returns home one night with his wife after an event in which he was honored for his efforts with children. But they are not alone, and a disturbed, nearly naked man named Vincent Gray, played by Donnie Wahlberg, appears in the door- doorway of their bathroom with a gun. He says, I do not want to be afraid anymore. Crowe realizes that Vincent is a former patient of Crowe, who he treated as a child for his hallucinations and delusions. He blames Malcolm for his his inability to help him and shoots him in the stomach, and seconds later he turns the gun on himself. Months later, Malcolm returns to work with nine-year-old Cole Sear, played by Haley Joel Osmond, with a similar condition to Vincent. Malcolm becomes dedicated to this patient, although he is haunted by his doubts and his ability to help him. Meanwhile, he begins to neglect his wife, with whom his relationship is falling apart. Malcolm earns Cole's trust, and Cole ultimately confides in him that he is clairvoyant and can see dead people. He helps Cole by suggesting that he try to find a purpose with his gift by trying to communicate with the ghosts. Perhaps he can help them on their journey by aiding them in their unfinished business on Earth. After helping a young girl, Kira Collins, played by Misha Barton, Cole confesses his, his ability to his mother, Lynn, played by Tony Collette. Although his mother is troubled by his story, Cole tells Lynn that her mother, Cole's grandmother, went to see her perform in a dance recital one night when she was a child, though Lynn did not know this because her mother stayed in the back of the audience where she could not be seen. Lynn accepts this as the truth, and a rapport with Cole is strengthened. His faith in himself, now restored as the result of his success with Cole, Crow returns to his home where he finds his wife sleeping on the couch, watching their old wedding video. A short conversation with his sleeping wife follows, and it's then that the film's major plot twist is revealed. Crow himself has been in fact dead the whole time, having died the night that Vincent shot him, and hence obviously why Cole could see him while his wife was seemingly distant. Thanks to Cole, Malcolm's unfinished business is completed. And there's some interesting little bits to this film that I wanted to mention. The surname Seer is a reference to a seer, spelled S-E-E-R, for, um, for example, a seer of occult visions. The role of Cole Sear was at one point offered to another young actor, Sean Smith. Haley Joel Osment landed the role after Smith was unable to cry during his audition. Shyamalan has a brief cameo in the film, playing the part of the doctor who examines Cole after the events at the birthday party. The presence of a ghost in popular myth is often thought to lower the temperature of the surrounding area. When there is a dead person, specifically an emotionally distraught dead person, who is near, Cole gets very cold and the viewer can see his breath. It's also a popular myth that dogs can sense the 
presence of spiritual beings, and is shown in the movie where Cole's dog gets restless whenever the ghost is around. M. Night Shyamalan has cited David Winning's episode of Are You Afraid in the Dark TV series, The Tale of the Dream Girl, as the inspiration for The Sixth Sense. The color red is used predominantly throughout the film in situations where the dead are present. You see the color of the balloon in Cole's sweater at the birthday party, the tent in which he first encounters Kira, the numbers on Crow's tape player, the doorknob to the locked closet, and the grieving mother's dress, etc. In the original script, the scene where Cole tells Malcolm a secret was supposed to be followed by a shot of numerous ghosts, people who died in the hospital. As played, however, the scene was powerful enough on its own, and the ending shot was never filmed. There's a short review I'd like to share by Steve Biodrowski. It's at hollywoodgothic.com. It'll be on the show notes. 1999 was the year of the horror scene to rise from the dead, thanks to the success of The Player Witch Project. Unfortunately, that film was more box office phenomenon than a good movie. Thankfully, The Sixth Sense came along to offer ample evidence that the genre's resurrection was more than just a fluke. This film proved that a supernatural spook show combined with solid drama could appeal to a broad, mainstream audience without downplaying the horror. The film benefits from writer-director M. Night Shyamalan's low-key, realistic approach, which mixes the supernatural with sentimentality. Yet, it is much more than a mere manipulative crowd-pleaser that struck box office gold by combining guaranteed commercial elements. It is actually a thoughtfully expertly crafted piece of entertainment. The film achieves both sophistication and scariness without short-circuiting its own ambitions. Best of all, the thrills are of the the creep-up-the-back-of-your-neck variety that work on the individual psyche as opposed to the simple shock sort, which Shyamalan would descend to in later works such as The Lady in the Water, which really only works a receptive audience eager for cheap thrills. Shyamalan achieves a brilliant sense of dread by combining convincing... Shyamalan achieves a brilliant sense of dread by completely convincing us of the everyday believability of his situations, and then, in the great tradition of ghost stories of M.R. James, allowing the supernatural to intrude gradually, thus creating a sense of the uncanny that's been long absent from the genre. Neither a self-reflexive comedy like Scream, nor a contrived gimmick film like The Blair Witch, this is a film as strong in characterization, dialogue, and acting department as any mainstream drama this year including the Best Picture Oscar winners, American Beauty. Now, this movie was nominated for six Academy Awards. Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay, M. Night Shyamalan. Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Haley Joel Osment. Best Actress in a Supporting Role, Toni Collette. And Best Editing, Andrew Munshane. The Sixth Sense is one of only four horror films that has ever been nominated for a Best Picture Academy Award. And Rotten Tomatoes gives it an 83%. At the box office... The film, with a budget of approximately $40 million, earned $293 million. Let's talk about box office for a moment. The film had a budget of approximately $40 million, and it earned over $293 million in the U.S., and a worldwide gross of $672 million, making it on to number 23 in the list of box office money earned in the U.S. as of August 2006. And let's move on to Unbreakable from 2000. Shyamalan was writer, director, and actor. This film explores the role that myth has in our civilization and specifically explores the way that humans use comic books to explore mythic dimensions of the real world. The film works on a second level, for within the film itself, comic books are, in a a real sense, man's last link to an ancient way of storytelling. So let's talk about what this film is about. Elijah Price, played by Samuel Jackson, is born with type 1 osteogenesis imperfecta commonly known as brittle bone, a rare disease in which the bones lack collagen of sufficient quality and or quantity 
and thus break very easily, and he receives the nickname Mr. Glass due to his fragility. He lives his life searching for a reason for his own existence. During the movie, he theorizes that if he is at one end of a curve, then perhaps there is somebody else quite opposite to him at the other end, someone with far greater than usual strengths. Security guard David Dunn, played by Bruce Willis, is also searching for a meaning to his life. Even with his marriage and the birth of his son, he feels an emptiness that something is missing, and his family life is in shambles. After surviving a massive train wreck that kills 131 people, Dunn is unharmed and is in fact the only survivor, he is contacted by Price who proposes to a disbelieving Dunn that he is in fact a modern day superhero. Elijah theorizes that comic book superheroes are a modern manifestation of something ancient about humanity, a pictorial history similar to Egyptian hieroglyphs, trying to record something long past. When David tries to ignore Elijah's theory, the dealer interferes with his family life by repeatedly stalking David and his wife, trying to get David to listen to him. He begins to feel whole again and is able to renew his relationships with wife and son. This leads to David's first heroic act, going out wearing a security poncho, which draws visual parallels to a superhero in a cape and hood, as Elijah's encouragement to prove that he is truly something special. David walks through crowds in a Philadelphia train station until his second sight tells him that a janitor he has passed is a psychotic murderer who is keeping his victim's family cap- captive and living in their home. After nearly drowning, David confronts the serial killer. He chokes the man into unconsciousness and releases the mother, only to find out she's already dead. The next morning, David shows the newspaper article of the heroic act to his son, who believed in him all along. It's a touching scene for father and son. In the final moments of the film, David attends a comic convention at Elijah's limited edition store. To his horror, he discovers that Price has caused several terrible disasters, including the train accident that opens the movie, in order to find someone who would miraculously survive as David did. The evidence is shown in blueprints of trains, buildings, and other areas which show their weakness, bomb-making kits, and other items. Price justifies his actions by comparing his relationship with Dunn to that of an often-repeated motif in superhero stories, that the hero and the villain are opposites, and often even friends at first. Before David turns his back on him, Elijah pleads with him to understand the feelings of loneliness and the supposed lack of purpose in life. Captions run, saying that after leaving, David informed the police about Elijah, whose office is littered with newspaper clippings and evidence right in the open that he's responsible responsible for the disasters. Elijah finishes his sentence saying, Do you know how I knew? It was the children. They called me Mr. Glass. The film ends with a caption that reads, He was arrested and sent to an institute for the criminally insane. So let's talk about the techniques that Shyamalan used in this film. Mirror imagery predominates the first half of the film. When Don is interrogated by the doctor after the train crash, it's viewed through a mirror. When we see Elijah as a child for the first time post-birth, we see him in the reflection of a television screen. After a grown-up Elijah begins his dealings with David, the mirror imagery is most, mostly replaced by shots depicting Elijah and David as symmetrical opposites. This technique also makes the images on screen seem like squares of a comic strip. A dark, bluish filter is used in many scenes, creating a subdued but unnerving atmosphere that matches the storyline. While most of the film is deep, dark blue, certain scenes are shown in warmer colors to create contrast. These scenes include David, whose world is much less bleak than Elijah's. Primary colors are sometimes added to give the sense of the flat, simple coloring of early comics, and characters who David senses as evil-doing are often shown wearing vivid colors in contrast to other characters around them. Both the cinematography and dialogue of the film are presented in a manner suggestive of the style of a comic book. Camera shots are long, with infrequent cuts and no abrupt changes in perspective. There is very little action during shots. When a character moves within a scene, 
They tend to hold one position for extended amounts of time to hint at the static illustrations of a graphic novel. Dialogue between characters is always segmented. When two characters converse, their speech never overlaps. They never interrupt each other. There is always a distinct pause between each line of dialogue, which suggests the speech balloons of a comic book. Each line of the script is separated by pauses because it is in their own balloon. So this leads us to a discussion about the different powers that Don and Elijah Price have. David Dunn's powers include a strong immune system, although two incidents reveal his weakness. Water. His bones are unbreakable, the exact opposite of Elijah's condition. He survives both a car crash and a train wreck without a scratch. In the latter case, it's as the only survivor. Although even with nearly unbreakable bones, he should have had bruises and cuts at least. He has a form of super strength, able to lift weights of at least 350 pounds. In a deleted scene, he was benching 500 pounds. In a flashback scene, he is able to tear a car's door off its hinges. He has to exert himself rather than effortlessly lifting incredible weights, as Superman does. But the weightlifting scene reveals that his limit is many times what he thought it was. And he has the ability to tell if someone has done something bad if he comes in physical contact with him, a form of psychometry. This is explained in the film as an extremely developed form of instinct. Elijah Price's powers include the evil genius. The exact opposite of the spectrum from David Dunn, he has a specific weakness caused by his bone disease that makes him extremely susceptible to physical harm. Elijah Price shares Dunn's vulnerability to water. Unlike Dunn, whose bones are too heavy for him to swim, Elijah's condition prevents him from being fit enough to swim. In a DVD bonus feature, Shyamalan notes that the film script originally had a comic book traditional three-part structure. The superhero's birth, his or her struggles against general evildoers, and the superhero's ultimate battle against the arch-enemy. Finding the birth section more interesting than the remainder, he decided to base the entire movie around that idea. What if superheroes walk amongst us, but we don't know about it? Better yet, what if even they don't know about it? That's the mind-blowing premise behind this dark thriller looking at comic book culture and the possibility of real-life struggles between the sides of good and evil. Comic art buff Elijah Price, Samuel L. Jackson, suffers from a rare form of brittle bone disease and has dedicated his life to finding someone at the other end of the spectrum, someone who cannot be harmed. Football stadium security guard David Dunn looks as good a candidate as any, having hit the headlines for emerging as the only survivor and completely unscathed at that of a horrific train crash. Don has other matters on his mind, not least the crumbling state of his family life, but before long finds it impossible to ignore Price's theory. Willis, as in The Sixth Sense, also directed by Shyamalan, is quiet, dark, and understated in his performance, while Samuel Jackson is his usual reliable self. Meanwhile, Robin Wright Penn is never less than believable in her role as a wife and mother whose relationship with Don lies in tatters. Spencer Treat Clark plays the kid torn between the two of them, living in hope that what Price says about his dad is true. What sets the film apart about its generic superhero flick is that it takes place in a real world where we recognize Superman and co. as consigned to fiction. Yet at the same time, Dunn's gradual realization that he possesses amazing strength and special powers never appears fantastical. And moviegoers who like nothing better than trying to guess the inevitable twist will be in their element. It's got a good one. It's got powerful imagery and fantastic direction. It needs credit for doing something different with the well-trodden path of comic book superheroes in Hollywood. In summary, it's a dark and enthralling delve into the possibility of real life, superheroes, and arch-villains. Four out of five stars. And Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 67%. At the box office, it made over $92 million, and it opened that first weekend at over $30 million. Next, we have Signs from 2002. Shyamalan was writer, director, and actor. 
The film is about a family that lives on a farm in Doylestown, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Graham Hess, played by Mel Gibson, is a former Episcopal priest who's lost his faith after the death of his wife, Colleen. No longer practicing religiously, Graham lives with his brother Merrill, played by Joaquin Phoenix, and his two children, Bo and Morgan. Things are fairly steady in his life until a mysterious crop circle appears in his cornfield. Its origin and purposes are unknown. As the story progresses, it's clear that Graham's farm is under watch. One night, he and Merrill chase a dimly seen person who is spying on them from the roof of their barn. The mysterious being disappears into the crops, moving faster and disappearing far easier than anyone can explain. Soon, Graham and his family are shocked to learn that similar crop circles have suddenly appeared all around the world, in ways too similar and too quickly to be a hoax. The situation turns even more dangerous when the UFOs become invisible. However, the government news agencies are certain that they are still there due to the fact that a bird was observed flying into them and falling. Graham returns home and finds his family waiting for him on the sofa, wearing hats made of aluminum foil to prevent the aliens from reading their minds. Learning from Morgan that they would probably invade if they were hostile and believing that the aliens are about to invade. They board up the doors and the windows and hide from the aliens, and although the aliens get in the house, they're not injured. The next morning, they hear local news reports that the aliens invaded the whole world, gassing and consequently killing them. It's never really explained what their purpose was, but M. Night Shyamalan has suggested they were harvesting humans for food. Humans found their weak spot, and the aliens vacated the Earth. Before the family can celebrate, an alien holds Morgan and sprays a poisonous gas at him. Merrill takes his baseball bat down from the wall and attacks the alien with it as Graham grabs Morgan's medicine and takes the children outside. The alien falls backwards into a half-empty glass of water that Bo left out and it burns through his flesh. Now knowing the weakness, Merrill keeps on attacking it, knocking over all Bo's water glasses until enough water hits and kills the alien. The asthma closed Morgan's lungs, saving him from the poison. And moments later, Morgan's lungs open and he appears to be on the way to recovery. In the end, Graham regains his faith. The final scene in winter shows Graham wearing a reverence collar, getting ready, presumably, for church with his family. Although the plot revolves around crop circles, producer Frank Marshall said, it's really about human emotion set in motion by a supernatural event. Shyamalan, who also plays a neighbor in the film, was inspired by Invasion of the Body body Snatchers and The Birds. The film's dramatic structure resembles others of its genre, particularly Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, but with some surprises, notably its exploration of a deeper psychological and religious aspects of human-felt terror. One of the first images we see is a cross-shaped clean spot on the wall of Graham's bedroom. We infer that the cross was removed when the death of Graham's wife precipitated his crisis of faith, yet its image remains. People cannot stop calling him father, although he asks them not to, and a girl in town insists he hear her confession. More poignantly, Graham's family looks to him for pastoral reassurance, which he can't or won't provide. The suspense builds slowly at first, though not without foreboding. Early on, the family dog is skewered with a barbecue fork. Graham insists the family go on its business normally, and the children quickly size up the impeding alien invasion, finally confirming by worldwide television coverage. A pivotal dramatic moment is the late-night whispered exchange between Graham and Merrill in which each stakes out his philosophical position on the impeding tragedy. Here the double meaning of the movie's title is revealed. The crop circles are signs, but so are premonitions from God. Graham no longer believes in signs. The twist at the end of Signs is a little different from M. Night Shyamalan's other films like The Sixth Sense. In those films, important fact is withheld from the audience until the end. In Signs, it's the meaning of the facts that is revealed. The last five minutes are exuberantly thrilling, 
As the family battles the now visible enemy, the disconnected details of the story, Morgan's asthma, Bo's aversion to steal water, Colleen's apparently nonsensical last words, all come to rapid fire convergence and the goal being not only the family's survival, but Graham's redemption. Rotten Tomato gives it a 75%. As far as box office numbers, there was a budget of about $72 million. Domestically, it pulled in almost $228 million. In the foreign box offices, made over $180 million, bringing up to a worldwide total of about $408 million. Let's move on to The Village from 2004. Shyamalan was writer, director, and actor. And the film opens in the funeral of a child in a small village, and the death date on the tombstone establishes the date as 1897. As the story progresses, it's revealed that the villagers live in fear of nameless creatures in the woods that surround the village. They have built a barrier of oil lanterns and lookout towers that are constantly manned to keep watch for those we do not speak of. It is explained that the villagers have a long-standing truce. The villagers don't go into their woods, and the creatures don't enter their village. Even so, dead-skinned bodies of small animals are starting to appear around the village. After the death of the child, Lucius Hunt, played by Joaquin Phoenix, asks the elders, the village's governing leaders, for permission to pass through the woods to get medical supplies from the towns beyond. His request is turned down, and later he is lectured by his mother Alice, played by Sigourney Weaver, for wanting to go to the towns which she describes as wicked places where wicked people live. The elders seem to keep dark secrets in the form of black boxes the contents of which they won't let anyone else see. After Lucius makes a short venture into the woods, the creatures leave warnings around the village in the form of red splashes of paint on all the villagers' doors. Meanwhile, Ivy Walker, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, the blind daughter of the head elder, Edward Walker, played by William Hurt, informs Lucius that she has strong feelings for him and he returns her affection. They arrange to be married, but Noah Percy, played by Adrian Brody, a friend of Ivy and Lucius, who is mentally ill and apparently enamored of Ivy, jealously attacks Lucius with a knife, seriously wounding him. Edward goes against the wishes of the other elders, agreeing to allow Ivy to pass through the forest and seek out medicine for Lucius. Before she leaves, we reach the first plot twist, where Edward explains the secret of the creatures. They are fabrications created by the elders in an attempt to keep any of the children from leaving the village. He does mention, though, that he has heard rumors of real creatures living in the woods. While Ivy is traveling through the forest, a creature suddenly attacks her, and she tricks the creature into falling into a hole in the ground where it's killed by the fall. It is then that the second plot twist is revealed. The creature is actually Noah in a creature costume that he found under the floor of the room he had been locked in. Ivy eventually finds her way to the edge of the woods where she encounters a large wall. After she climbs over the wall, the final plot plot twist is revealed. The film is set in the present day. A newspaper in one scene has July 30th, 2004 on it, the date of the film's release. A park ranger named Kevin, driving a Land Rover with the words Walker Wildlife Preserve on the side, spots Ivy and is shocked to hear that she has come out of the woods. After hearing Ivy's last name is Walker, he agrees to help her. Once Ivy has the medicine she's looking for, she returns to the village. The sequence is intercut with brief segments showing the elders opening their black boxes, which are revealed to contain mementos from their past lives in the outside world, including one or more items related to a traumatic event in their past. So the village is actually founded sometime in the 1970s, when Edward Walker, professor of American history at the University of Pennsylvania, approached other people he met at a grief counseling clinic after his father had been murdered in a violent crime. He asked them if they wished to join him in an idea he had. From this apparently grew the village, a secluded town in the middle of a wildlife preserve purchased with Edward's dead father's fortune, a place where they would be protected from any aspect of the outside world, even airplanes. 
hinted when Kevin's supervisor, Ranger, said that there was a rumor a while back that some government guys had been paid off to not allow planes to fly over the preserve. Once there, it appears they rolled the clock back to where they thought was a more simple, peaceful time. As with the Sixth Sense, the village similarly portrayed the color red as having connotations with evil and the supernatural, specifically the murderous monsters that inhabit the woods surrounding the village. Simon & Schuster, the publishers of 1995 children's book Running Out of Time by Margaret Peterson Haddix, claimed that the film had stolen ideas from the book's story, which features a village whose inhabitants pretend to be living in the 1830s, when the year is actually 1995. The ending is bold and will probably be a bit too surreal for some moviegoers. It's a fair ending in the sense that it's consistent with what comes before it, but many will feel cheated anyway. Technically, the film is every bit as brilliant as Shyamalan's previous efforts. Interesting camera angles are used to great effect as the various shadows and fog. So is his unofficial trademark of terror through silence. Knight knows when to back off and let the audience raise their own tension level. He understands that a good thriller is as much about what you don't show as what you do. Those eagerly awaiting for the end of the quasi-official trilogy, which began with Unbreakable and Signs, might be a little let down. The twists and turns in the village are of an entirely different nature than the revelations in his last few films. Still, it's technically impressive, well-acted film with a daring ending of a few truly superb moments. It's only the expectation that Shyamalan brings with him that will stop this film from receiving rave reviews across the board. The village is a small step down for this accomplished young filmmaker, but it would be a step up for most others and earns the price of admission with strong performances well-crafted cinematography, and sheer cinematic moxie. It's truly a love-it-or-hate-it love film and needs to be seen for its ambition alone. Now, this is from mnight.com. And what I thought was most interesting about this whole film and the story and the whole bit was that the Sci-Fi Channel claimed that its documentary special, The Buried Secrets of M. Night Shyamalan, shot on the side of the village that Shyamalan was le legally dead for nearly a half hour while drowned in a frozen pond in a childhood accident, and that upon being rescued, he had experiences of communicating with spirits, feeling an obsession with the supernatural. The Sci-Fi Channel also claimed that Shyamalan had grown sour when the documentary filmmakers' questions got too personal, and had therefore withdrawn from participating and threatened to sue the filmmakers. In truth, Shyamalan developed the hoax with Sci-Fi, going so far as having Sci-Fi staffers sign a non-disclosure agreement with a $5 million fine attached and required Shyamalan's office to formally approve each step. Neither the childhood accident nor the supposed rift with the filmmakers ever occurred. The hoax included a non-existent sci-fi publicist, David Westover, whose name appeared on the press releases regarding the special. Sci-fi also fed false news stories to the Associated Press and Zap2It.com, among others. A New York Post news item based on a sci-fi press release referred to Shyamalan's attorneys threatening to sue their filmmakers. The attorneys' names were non-existent. After an AP reporter confronted Sci-Fi Channel president Bonnie Hammer at a press conference, Hammer admitted the hoax, saying it was part of a guerrilla marketing campaign to generate pre-release publicity for the village. Despite his office's disclosure agreement requirement and approvals for each marketing step, Shyamalan claimed to the AP that he had nothing to do with the marketing of it. I saw this documentary, and it was... Well done, I thought. It was actually two hours, seemed a little long, but you got to see the set, and I liked it. And once I found out it was a hoax, I just kind of laughed at it and thought, well, it's a good publicity stunt. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 42%, and at the box office, the film ended up pulling in a modest $114 million in the U.S. However, it cost $71.6 million in production costs and $40 million advertising campaign. It probably failed to make a profit on its opening run. 
it, wanted, it went on to collect another 140 million worldwide. So that brings us to Lady in the Water from 2006. Shyamalan was writer, director, and actor, and he actually had a big acting role in this film compared to the others. So let's talk about what this film is all about, because I know probably many of you have not seen it yet. It just left the theaters and will be out on DVD December 19th, 2006. After falling and knocking himself unconscious on a slippery pavement, building manager Cleveland Heap, played by Paul Giamatti, finds himself rescued by a delicate and mysterious young woman named Story, played by Bryce Dallas Howard. Cleveland informs Story that she must then return home and takes her outside, while asleep, to get some fresh night air, but suddenly Heap comes upon a vicious creature, but escapes with Story. Story discovers his journal and learns that he was once a medical doctor, but gave it up and lost a sense of purpose in life after his wife and children were murdered. While talking with Young Soon Choi, Cleveland learns the legend of the NARF, a, story, a term Story uses to refer to herself. A NARF is a term from an old East Asian fairy tale for a nymph or water fairy. Story was sent from the Blue World to awaken a human called the Vessel, who would help the world. He also discovers that there are creatures that try to kill any NARF that leaves the world, called Scrunts. They appear to be covered with grass and can flatten themselves to hide completely from human view. In order to control these and other spirits, there are laws in the world upheld by three bloodthirsty monkey-like creatures called Tartuics, the only things that a scrunt fears. After discovering this, Heap asks Story for a description of her human vessel so he can help find it, and Story only knows that the vessel is a writer. Heap seeks out the writer and eventually finds out that Vic, played by Shyamalan, a young writer, is suffering from writer's block. Believing that this tenant is Story's vessel, he arranges a meeting between the two. When he meets Story, Vic feels an awakening that clears his mind and allows him to complete his book. Since Story's task is accomplished, she is free to return to her world, the Blue World. As she attempts to go home that night, something goes wrong. The scrunt attacks her, breaking the rules and badly injuring her. Heap rescues her, and, another, and they seek refuge in the apartment of Vic and his sister. In order to prevent the wounds from becoming poisoned... Cleveland swims under the pool and finds a medicine which Story had been given by her family. Heap questions Young Soon's mother for more information and finds out that there are humans with powers capable of helping a narf, including a symbolist, a guardian, a guild, and a healer. After Story's journal or journey is botched, Heap realizes that he has not properly identified Story's helpers. The supposed symbolist realizes that his son Joey is the true symbolist. His son in turn identifies the real guild, Seven Sisters. With the observations of Mrs. Bell, whom Heap thought was the healer, Heap comes to the realization that he himself, the healer. With the help of the true healer and guild, Story is healed and revived. Then they take her out to the poolside. As they approach it, the scrunt attacks, but is held, but is held captive by the eyes of Reggie, a strong-arm athlete now revealed as the guardian. Urged by Cleveland, Reggie advances towards the scrunt, who backs away from him. Abruptly, the Tartuic emerged from the nearby hedgerow, pounce on the scrunt, and beat it to death. The great Aitlan successfully carries Story back to the Blue World. So the major themes are identity and interconnectedness. The Narf, Story, as well as her helpers, struggle with their roles and identities in the legend that unfolds as the film's plot. Story does not believe that she is the Madame Narf, who is generally inspire and help the inhabitants of the world, Blue World, when the great Aitlan brings her back. Cleveland Heap has a hard time believing that he is a true healer, even though he used to practice medicine as a doctor. And Vic, the young writer, and his sister have a hard time believing that they will write, that he will write something that will inspire a great U.S. president. The critic, 
Harry Farber, who glibly predicts which characters have which roles in the story, is proven wrong and killed by the scrunt. His smug failure to seek for understanding of the situation, as the others involved have done, is his undoing. The film shows that each individual of the story is essential regardless of that individual self-estimation. Each one brings about change in the world, whether or not he or she is aware of it or concerned about it. Each character in the film suffered from some mental anguish, which is particularly the case with Cleveland Heap. Healing is necessary for them to carry on in their world, and this was illustrated by the healing of story and the subsequent healing of all those involved. Interconnectedness is shown to be important, if not vital, in the film. In his fairy tale, M. Night Shyamalan employed classic symbolization that is pervasive in world literature, waters used, which symbolizes purification, and overwhelming power. This is what Peter Travers at Rolling Stone had to say about the film. Everyone is ragging so much on writer-director M. Night Shyamalan. He's reportedly arrogant, self-absorbed, and unable to produce a hit to match Sixth Sense, that it would be a pleasure to report that his pet project, Lady in the Water, based on the story he made up for his children, in his vindication. I'd be lying. This film is a muddle, burdened with too many characters and a sorry lack of thrills, flair, and coherence. Yet, Shyamalan's talent is real. Unbreakable strikes me as criminally underrated. What hobbles Lady... The tale of a scene nymph named Story, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, who looks ethereal and let's let's it go with that. Trapped underneath a swimming pool in a Philadelphia apartment complex is Shyamalan's unjustified conviction that what he means to say about life and faith is coming across on screen. It isn't. Story depends on building Super Cleveland Heap, Paul Giamatti, who cannot be less than excellent, to save her from creatures who don't want her to go to get home. Why? Don't look for answers. You'll only find arcane references and characters played by fine actors. Jeffrey Wright, Bill Irwin, who barely register. But if Lady is a misfire for Shyamalan, every non-hack filmmaker has them. It is also the work of a born filmmaker. A new book, The Man Who Heard Voices by Michael Bamberger, tells how Shyamalan was so enraged at Disney for rejecting his script that he retaliated by taking Lady to Warner's. Whether or not you agree with that the suits at Disney were right in rejecting the script, and they have their points, it's hard to side with a studio for failing to take a risk on a director who has earned millions even with lesser films like The Village. You leave Lady thinking there are still voices in Shyamalan's head well worth a listen. He gives the film two and a half out of five. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 24%. Let's look at the box office. In its opening weekend, July 20, 21st to 23rd, 2006, the film grossed a total of $18.2 million placing third in the U.S. box office results for that weekend. It was M. Night's lowest opening for any of his five major films. Due to negative reviews and poor word of mouth, its second week fell sharply to $7.1 million, pushing its total to $32.2 million. Its third weekend was no better, falling another 62.1% to $2.7 million. As of September 14, 2006, its total is $42.145 million. With an estimated budget of $75 million and a further $70 million in advertised costs, it's unlikely that the film will see a profit in its theatrical run. The DVD will be released, as I said earlier, in the U.S. on December 19, 2006. We'll see how well it does with DVD sales. Let me talk about my opinion of the films. Let me just start by saying that Shyamalan is one of my favorite new directors. He's creative, bold, a great storyteller which are all essential elements to a good thriller, or any drama. I like his reliance on myth and legend and incorporating fantasy, supernatural, and sci-fi elements into his works. However, they haven't all worked. 
Sixth Sense blew me away when I saw it in the theater. I went in without expectations, had not seen the end spoiled for me like I did Seven. I hate that. But I loved this film. It had the perfect balance of suspense without being fed everything, and his use of symbols, symbols and various layers allowed the viewer to get something new out of each watch. I've seen it so many times. Then came Unbreakable. I like comic books a lot. I love all the superhero films and really like the concept between the com behind the comic book as a storytelling device. I think Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson did a great job in their roles. However, I felt that the pacing was far too slow for me. To me, there was too much backstory and the character development seemed kind of forced, and some of it was not particularly necessary for me to like Willis's good guy and dislike Jackson's bad guy. Also, the end of the or the twist at the end did not bring the overwhelming aha moment that Sixth Sense did. I thought the coloration and the way it was filmed and the dialogue seemed a little strange to me. Now that I understand exactly how and why it was done the way it is, I think that the film does have its genius moments. But overall, it's not a film I like very much. I've watched it several times, I own it, and I have friends that just absolutely love this film out of all of Shyamalan, so I do give it a lot of merit and I think people have overlooked it, which is sad. Now, I was highly anticipating signs after the first two. I was so excited. I love Joaquin Phoenix, and I love the alien idea. The characters were well-developed, the family drama was well-balanced, and there were great moments of humor, such as the tinfoil hats to keep the aliens from reading their minds. I love that part. In fact, I really liked three-quarters of the film. It was not until the end when Shyamalan actually showed us what the aliens looked like and interacted with the humans that the film fall short. I wish he had just not shown us everything and left some of it to our imagination like he did on his other films. The Village is one of my favorite films. You know, people love it or hate it. I love it. The actors are great, particularly newcomer Bryce Dallas Howard and the always talented Adrian Brody. I liked Joaquin in the roles. He's very different from the characters he's played before. I don't know how many times I've seen this film. I am always promoting it. I loved the visualization, the way it was shot, the colors, the symbolism. I thought all of the elements were there. But people don't like the twist at the end, and I understand that, but I thought it was great. Now, Lady in the Water has not been out long, and I was only recently able to see it. It's very different from the others, in that it's actually a bedtime story for his children that he incorporated into film. I wanted some good scares and some great mythology. There were billboards all over San Francisco this summer. It was advertised on the side of every bus I saw for weeks. That in the CW Free to Be campaign. Big, splashy, markety campaign, and it just did not pan out. As soon as it was released, the people I know said it would be best to wait for DVD rather than spend $10.50 at the theater. Still, I was anxious and excited to see it. And you know what? I thought it was alright, but really didn't like certain parts, enough to bring down my overall viewing experience quite a bit. I really liked the build-up, and instead of waiting towards the end to find out about the nymph, it occurs throughout the entire film, right from the beginning. I like the use of his mythology. I like the fact that it was based on an East Asian myth, and that you, didn't, you weren't fed it all immediately. I think it could have been so much more. But I don't really think it's fair to compare all the films on their storylines and other elements because they are all different, and none can compare to Sixth Sense. It's easy to look at all, all of them in terms of whether the story appealed to me as a consumer. When everybody I know and the critics panned The Village, I stood up for it, because it's my second favorite of his films right after Sixth Sense. I was very disappointed with Lady in the Water, but again, it's quite different from the other films intentionally. I remain a devoted fan to this very talented man and look forward to his next project. And that's it for my discussion of M. Night. The song of the night is called Fallen Angel. It's by Brie DeMoss. Enjoy!
Well, that's it for this episode. My next podcast will be an ambitious one covering Stephen King. Take care. I'll talk to you soon. You can email me at darkgatehorror at gmail.com. And don't forget to visit my website at darkgatehorror.blogspot.com.